Hey everybody, welcome to Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Pakulski. I am so excited to share today's podcast with you. This is one of the topics that I am most interested in and I think has the greatest potential for changing the greatest number of lives. Breathing is the area of focus today. And not only is it breathing, but we went to the top of the top, the guy who is the most referenced person in breathing, Patrick McEwen joins us today to give you the breathing masterclass. And he does such an incredible job of taking complex things and simplifying them in this podcast that I literally think I should just have stepped away and let him take on. It was literally like him standing in front of a class and just riffing on all the most valuable theory and practice. How you can actually take this theory and put it into practice it was absolutely wealth of information divulged by Patrick today. And, and I'm so grateful for his contribution to the world and his continuous pursuit of all the nuance that exists and all the opportunity that exists in breathing. So whether you want to uh, improve your stress resilience, your sleep, your digestion, your performance, um, gosh, your biomechanics, the way you move, the way your hips feel, the way your shoulders and spine feel, it seems as though that the breath is the foundational piece. And if you guys have heard me talk about breathe, walk, and meditate in the past, those are your three most important things you must do as a human every day if you want to live an optimized life. It's great to run. It's great to train. It's great to do all these other wonderful things. But you must breathe intentionally every day. You must walk intentionally every day. And if you want to turn that into a run, you can do that too. Uh, and you must meditate every day, even if it's only for five to ten minutes each. I highly suggest you do these things and you make them unconscious. Why? Because it's so vital to you to get to do them at a, at a level that's higher, right? So we don't do something often. We're just kind of starting to scratch the surface. So what you want to do is make them almost unconscious. So when you become stressed or when you need a, a resource, it's there for you. It's not something you have to think about at that point, right? So if you're doing walking every day, eventually, now I can just walk without thinking about it, do it mechanically really well. And now I can do a meditative walk or I can do breath practice when I walk and I can increase the speed of my walk and I can do breath holds when I walk and I can start stacking other things on top. And that's one of the beautiful things of all of these simple foundation human necessities, right? We want to live an optimized life. We must breathe. And as Patrick will tell you today exactly how to do that, we must walk. We must do it every day mindfully and not just muting out and listening to music or whatever. Like do it intentionally. Do it with an intent, which means I'm paying attention to the way I walk, the way I breathe, the way my posture is, the way my arms swing, the way that the sounds are buzzing in my ear. Pay attention. And then meditation, obviously, you guys know, have, have thousands and thousands and thousands of years of practice. I don't need to tell you about that, but maybe I do and maybe I will, as some of our guests sometimes do. But uh, without further ado from me, I absolutely am honored and privileged to welcome back to the podcast, Patrick McEwen. Today's podcast is brought to you guys, my favorite mushroom company in the world, Real Mushrooms, 30% off to get the best quality organic fruiting body mushrooms. Now, here's the, the controversy, right? You get a lot of American-based companies putting out mycelium. And they've got research verifying mycelium is useful, but there's also research, a lot of research verifying that it's not. And the previous guest of the podcast, Jeff Chilton, told us all about how the fruiting body is an absolute necessity it's not the mycelium. So realmushrooms.com is the best source on the internet. I've sourced them all. This is the best source on the internet to get the highest quality ingredients. And you're getting 30% off your first order, which is unbelievable. Use the code BEN to get hooked up with 30% off. And if you've already used that code, you can use the code MUSCLE to continue to get 20% off, which is still absolutely phenomenal. This is something I get constantly sent to my house. You guys don't hear me talking about it all the time. There's not been a day that's gone by in the last two years that I haven't used mushrooms. 
And I'm going to start experimenting a little bit more with some cordyceps uh, in my morning coffee. And you guys know I have my, my, my ritual. And I'm going to add some cordyceps in because I've heard recently that there may be some huge opportunities within cordyceps. And some people are calling it rocket fuel to upgrade your oxygen delivery. Maybe it's going to improve endurance. And I will let you know in due time. Enjoy the podcast. Patrick McEwen, and don't forget to head over to realmushrooms.com and use the code BEN to get hooked up with all of your mushroom needs today. Mr. Patrick McEwen, welcome back. It's absolutely an honor, my friend. Thanks very much, Ben. Always great to be here. I'm so grateful for the work that you put into breathing. And I often say that the people who are willing to commit their lives to something are the ones who should be lifted and their messages spread. You're definitely someone who commits seemingly a huge component or percentage of your life to understanding everything that goes into breath work. Uh, so thank you. Yeah, you know, it's easy because if you can find an occupation that you're suited to, you know, just you have an interest in it and uh, yeah. it makes it easy. It makes it effortless. So I suppose it goes back to um, try and find a job that you like. Yeah. But so every time I speak with you, um, the thing that blows my mind is the level of depth of knowledge when it comes to all of the research and you just pull it off the top of your head and your understanding is so tremendous that you're always the person that people are referring to. You know, we bring other breathing experts on or other performance experts and they're always referencing you. So it's truly an honor to have you back on and to start exploring kind of where your brain has gone in the last 12 and 18 months in, in the progressing of understanding of breath. So you've got a new book coming out called The, breath cure, the Breathing Cure or The Breath Cure? The Breathing Cure. Breathing Cure. Uh, deep book going into, I guess, everything there is to, to understand about breath. I'd love to have you just start off, maybe even before you get into the book, talking about what areas of focus you've had in the last you know, 12 to 18 months during COVID, pre-COVID. You know, with breathing, I suppose, traditionally, I was always involved with breathing exercises for people with respiratory complaints and sleep disorder, breathing, recovery there, sleep apnea anxiety, panic disorder, and then more recently in the last five to eight years in sports performance. And then the last couple of years, we're looking at more so the vagus nerve and heart rate variability and the clinical studies that have been evolving over the last 20 to 30 years. It's really time to bring breathing into mainstream. And, you know, we have to think of the breath as that one function of the human body that impacts more disciplines of medicine than mm -hmm. any other function. Everything. You know, so, and yet it just doesn't get the attention. I think it's because it's simplified, but the more that we can show that there are papers existing and some of this stuff is not new, you know, people have been writing about the detrimental impacts of mouth breathing for a hundred years, and yet it didn't get out there. The Bohr effect was discovered back in 1904. Nitric oxide from the nose has been antiviral and antibacterial and redistributing the blood throughout the lungs, first discovered in 1991. Not new stuff, but... There is a greater amount of papers coming out in the last five years. For example, functional breathing and functional movement. So you can imagine the emphasis with strength and conditioning coaches and Pilates instructors and yoga and looking to improve the biomechanics of breathing, looking to improve core strength, but not necessarily looking at breathing from the depth to which you need to look it upon. It's not just enough just to focus on one dimension of breathing and I get it you know I was a buteco instructor still am and I focused primarily on the biochemistry for 15 years and I ignored the biomechanics and I ignored resonance frequency breathing 
And a yoga instructor who is taught to a particular tradition is going to follow the tradition. And they are going to focus more so on the biomechanics and not take into consideration the biochemistry and not necessarily take into consideration resonance, resonance frequency breathing. And then you may have a heart mat practitioner and they're focusing on heart rate variability, but they're not looking at the biomechanics and not looking at the biochemistry. And this is the thing with the breath. It's not just one dimension. And the other aspect of it is the enormous potential that we have here. And I'm going to say 20 years in, the more that I work with it, the more we realize just what we don't know. Yeah. This has an enormous power. And none of this, you know, like mankind has been following the breath for two and a half thousand years. But I just feel that it got a bad rap over the years and it got a bad rap because people were kind of talking about different breathing exercises and they weren't able to support it. There was no physiological reason that all they were doing was just, you know, they were passing on a message, but that message was getting distorted over the years. And one of those messages is your stress, take a deep breath. And the person usually responds with this full and big breath. And, you know, that doesn't make people feel better. And on the basis that it doesn't make people feel better, it's not going to get any attention. So it's put aside then. If we really explore what we can do through the breath, and I'm not just talking about the individual who's got asthma or the person with sleep apnea, and even this field of sleep apnea, it's very common. It is a huge negative impact on health. It affects more men than it does women. And breathing re-education has a huge application. However, nobody has looked at research worldwide. What happens when you address breathing patterns from three dimensions? And the last few weeks, over the last couple of months, I was writing a paper with another ear, nose, and well, I'm not an ENT, but I was writing a paper with an, an ear, nose, and throat doctor, Dr. Carlos O'Connor, and another medical doctor. And we had the paper published. It was accepted for publication. We got no news last night. So here is a peer-reviewed article looking at what happens when we change breathing patterns and the impact that this can have on a condition such as sleep apnea. And think of the relevance of this. Productivity is affected. How many Americans wake up feeling tired every morning? Most. And they're going into work. They're not able to focus. They're not able to handle stress because we think about resilience. You know, this word resilience is bandied about. I know if, if I have a bad night's sleep and we can be all prone to it this is the reality of it and you're waking up almost feeling like you've had a hangover you're grumpy you can't focus you're, you're definitely not productive you know you'd sit down to write or you'd sit down to formulate um you know even answering emails and you just don't have that concentration and this is where we can influence it and i don't think any individual will recover and improve resilience without looking at sleep and this goes back a few years i remember i was talking about i can't remember the guys but there were special forces, the Green Berets, and they wrote a book, I think it's called The Bomb Factory, The Blast Factory. But these guys were suffering, two Green Berets, special forces, suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. And I remember them telling, saying it to me, that cognitive behavioral therapy, they didn't get a whole lot out of it. The best thing that they got in terms of their PTSD was getting their mouth closed at night, taping the lips, something as simple as that, but it makes sense because if you have a deeper quality sleep, you wake up feeling more refreshed and it's better. So I suppose, Ben, we, you know, don't just think of breathing as being, you know, put your hands on your, on your abdomen and as you breathe in, you're pushing the belly out and start filling the, the lower lungs full of air and filling the upper. And, you know, let's start looking at everyday breathing patterns. 
75% of the adult population have anxiety, sorry, 75% of the adult population with anxiety have dysfunctional breathing. Why is that group not getting their breathing patterns assessed, screened and addressed? Because CBT is not going to change respiratory physiology. And oftentimes those individuals, they have poor sleep. And again, how can you have a calmness of the mind if, the, if, if your sleep quality is not good? Look at the asthma population. Even individuals with exercise-induced asthma. Think of all the athletes that come into your gym. And these guys and gals are feeling bronchoconstriction. They're prone to chest infections. You know, they push themselves if to do a long endurance event. The next thing is they feel that their, their lungs are raw and inflamed. How about changing their breathing patterns and giving them the tools of including breathing through the nose? And I know at the start, for every individual, it's more difficult to breathe through your nose during physical exercise, but this is the load. You're adding an extra load onto your breathing during training, helps to strengthen the breathing muscles, but it also helps you to tolerate higher pressure of carbon dioxide in the blood. And that's the primary stimulus to breathe. And by doing that, then you can improve your breathing efficiency. So your breathlessness during physical exercise is less, and there's more gas left in the tank. You've got a better reserve. So that's just a couple of aspects of it. And, you know, it's, it's the new book forced me to look at topics that I hadn't looked at, diabetes. And again, that was by accident. One guy called Nick Keat, he's diabetic since I think he was 11 or 12 years of age, type 1. And he was using diet and physical exercise, you know, helping him, no doubt. He got the oxygen advantage, started taping his mouth up at night and his diabetic control improved, started slowing down his breathing, his diabetes control improved. His insulin now is 20% less than what it was. And mm. it's not just about reducing medication, but here we are giving a tool back that costs pretty nothing. The book was $20, you know? And not only are you going to get benefits, does Nick get benefits for his diabetes? But I, I was, anytime I think about the breath, I think of the benefits that I've got from it. I think of the benefits, the potential calmness of the mind, the ability to focus and concentrate, holding your attention on your breathing to train the brain. And I often use the example, regardless of what field we work in, we need concentration. The child in school needs concentration, otherwise they don't do well in exams. The, the student in university needs concentration. The person, the CEO needs to be able to concentrate. So concentration is one of those life skills that is absolutely dema demanded of us, but yet nobody tells us how to concentrate. We are not told how to improve our concentration. And then we have to ask the question, what impacts our concentration? Well, if the mind is racing, if there's a lot of thought activity coming in and out of the mind, if you cannot switch off your mind, you're not going to be able to focus because how can you focus on a subject matter when your mind is constantly bombarded with thoughts? How do we get control of that brain? How do we get control of the mind? And education teaches us how to think and to reason and to decipher information and to break information into tiny pieces. We are being trained how to think, but we are not taught how to stop thinking. And I'm not meaning to stop thinking just like a vegetable. I'm meaning to have the calmness that we can focus upon what we need to focus on. Sleep is important and breathing is the gateway both to sleep and also to concentration because we can calm urinal excitability known since 1924. 
the brain, by regulating breathing, regulates its own excitability. And this was known with people with epilepsy, and I put a chapter on epilepsy. And I'm not saying that breathing is going to help all forms of epilepsy, but it does help some. And part of the diagnosis of a child or a teenager, maybe an adult as well in a hospital setting, to see if they're prone to epilepsy is to ask them to hyperventilate and to see how does the brain respond due to the heavy breathing. And if the brain is responding due to the heavy breathing, well, then we know that heavy breathing is impacting epilepsy for that individual. Why not teach that individual to counter the effects of stress? Because when they get into stress, they're naturally going to start breathing faster and harder, or maybe their everyday breathing is faster and harder, which is feeding into their condition. And you know, it's, it's amazing. You know, we have this tool and you're right. This has been overlooked. Yeah, that's so much, so amazing. There's so much value in that that I want to unpack. So first thing I'll say to anyone listening, like the first thing that I suggest everyone do, whether their objective is, in, is performance or improving stress, improving sleep, like anyone who wants to improve their life, period. The first thing we're like, okay, we have to address breath and looking at those three pillars of breath, the biomechan biomechanics, the biochemistry and the cadence as you teach is always the lens through which I look at it. And then, you know, always making sure the biomechanics is on point. And that takes time. And people sometimes get frustrated that, oh, I don't breathe correctly. And now it's gonna take this overwhelming amount of work. And it's not, it's just time and consistency. And then learning how to manipulate the biochemistry, as you say, is kind of this access point, we'll call it into uh, either higher levels of performance or a more calm mind. And I'd love to have you draw a correlation then, or like maybe a go through the actual biochemistry of, What's happening? Like, why does breathing itself improve somebody's focus and concentration? So uh, you and I know that. And if people have listened to the podcast in the past, they'll probably know as well. But I'd love for, to have you, for people who haven't heard your stuff before, just unpack that a little bit because you, know, you and I draw a straight line between breathing and focus, um, and, but most people may not. Sure. There's a number of different levels. You know, anytime you pay attention to your breathing, you're going to help bring a stillness to the mind and mindfulness and meditation is all being about that. And it's wonderful. However, the group of people who need it most cannot do it. How can you focus on your breath when, you're, when your mind is in turmoil? It's not just enough to focus on the breath, but we have to influence our breathing and alter it. Think of how somebody typically breathes if they're prone to anxiety, panic disorder, or a racing mind. So you can have if, you, if we were to assess the world's population, especially in the Western world, and try and find out the degree of a racing mind there, I would reckon it's pretty high. It's not about anxiety. It's the fact that we cannot switch off. How can we help to switch off? Number one, when we slow down the speed of our breathing, and you could do this in the comfort of your chair at home, you have your mouth closed, you're breathing in and out through your nose, and really slow down the speed of the air coming into your nose and almost breathe in almost that the breath is imperceptible. And after you take a very light breath in, have a really slow and relaxed and gentle breath out. You're having a slow and prolonged exhalation. And then when you need to breathe in, take a very soft and light, gentle breath in. And the purpose of this exercise is to slow down the speed of your breathing so that you breathe less air <clears throat> into your lungs. And because you breathe less air, there's a gas called carbon dioxide that accumulates in your blood because you're not getting rid of the gas so much from the blood through the lungs. And you know that carbon dioxide increases when you feel air hunger. So the objective is to reduce the volume of air that you breathe, to breathe less air for a period of time, 
to increase carbon dioxide in the blood. And as carbon dioxide increases, your blood vessels dilate. <clears throat> and as carbon dioxide increases, there's what's called a right shift of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. But hemoglobin, which is the main carrier of oxygen in the blood, it releases oxygen in the presence of carbon dioxide, the resultant blood change to blood BH. So when we think of bringing a calmness to the mind, the biochemical component is very important because if we have an individual who is in a state of breathing slightly faster and harder, it's getting rid of too much carbon dioxide from the blood through the lungs. This is increasing blood pH and this arouses the central nervous system. So the brain becomes excited due to the hyperventilation from a biochemical point of view. That's why it's important also to normalize minute ventilation. And what I mean by that is to breathe a normal volume of air per minute, not to overbreathe. We have to dismiss the whole idea that it's beneficial to be breathing hard, hard breathing. I remember doing an exam. I always use the example. It's going in to do a finals exam. I was anxious about it. I took a walk for two minutes before the exam and I was taking these full big breaths for two minutes and I walked into the exam hall, spaced out, lightheaded, couldn't focus. So I did the wrong thing, but that was the information that was available because that's all I was hearing as a young 20 year old, take more air, breathe big, you know, inside in a studio, everybody is hearing their breathing. You know, that's <clears throat> not what the breath is about. Subtlety is about breathing. And if you go back to the ancient yoga texts, and one yoga instructor, Robin Rottenberg, has just done that. She wrote a book called Restoring Prana. And ancient yoga was not about hard breathing. The word that was used was subtlety. The breath must be subtle. Now, you think of subtle breathing. That means breathing light. Mm -hmm. And they knew about the importance of conservation of the breath. But in the Western world, we have the opposite idea. So that's from a biochemical point of view. From a biomechanical point of view, yes, of course, there is a connection with the diaphragm and the emotions. It's not just that the diaphragm is responsible for respiration, but there is some connection there. There is some feedback from the diaphragm back to the brain. Yep. When we breathe low, with greater amplitude of the diaphragm, it helps to bring a calmness to the mind. So and low, just meaning into your belly and, and down expansive into the diaphragm. Exactly. So basically when a person breathes, first of all, to breathe low, we have to breathe through the nose. If we breathe through the mouth, we typically activate the upper chest. So nose breathing is going to ensure a greater amplitude of the diaphragm so that during the breath in, the diaphragm is moving downwards. Now, as the diaphragm is moving downwards, we're, we're going to have movement to the side ribs. So the lower side ribs should be pushing outwards. We have movement to the front. We've movement to the back. We've movement to the sides. And movement to the sides is also very important, and it's a different topic, but the relationship between functional breathing and functional movement. So we do need low breathing for calmness of the mind. But also when we breathe low, we typically breathe slow. And slow breathing is also beneficial, and this is for resonance frequency breathing. But even if we have a slow respiratory rate, not necessarily down to between 4.5 and 6.5 breaths per minute, I'll talk about that in a moment, but if you have an individual with a high respiratory rate, 15, 16 plus breaths per minute, the communication from the body back to the brain is that the body is in a state of stress. And I'm talking about this is when the individual is not during physical exercise, but during rest. So, you know, we have to think of throughout our evolution, any time that we were confronted by stress as a human being, our breathing always responded 
to be faster, harder, and upper chest. That's the way it was. But if we breathe faster, harder, and upper chest, it's activating that fight or flight response. And if we breathe slower, lower, and lighter, the information from the body back to the brain, the brain is interpreting it that everything is all right. And the brain then is going to feed information back to the body based on the fact that the individual is in a safe environment because the person must be in a safe environment because their breathing is light, their breathing is slow, and their breathing is deep. So the brain is quantifying fast and hard breathing and reading that as the person is in stress. But what about the individual? And what about the child and the teenager and the adult who is breathing hard and fast and upper chest all the time? And you know what? It's not that they're having a panic attack, but it's just if you look at their breathing, you'll see it's a bit in the upper chest and it's a little bit faster. And it's not something that overtly jumps out at you. And I think this is what's being missed. However, if we make subtle changes to that person's breathing, we can bring a calmness to the mind. Now, the other aspect is, how about slowing down the breathing one step further? This is where we sit down for maybe 10 minutes. You could have your hands just on your lap or you could have your hands on your sides. And as you breathe in, you're feeling the lower ribs move out. And as you breathe out, you're feeling that the lower ribs are moving in. And then to slow down your breathing to a cadence of six breaths per minute. So you could be breathing in two, three, four, five, out, two, three, four, five. Timing the respiratory rate. You could do five seconds in and five seconds out, or you could do four seconds in and six seconds out. And this is the ideal respiratory rate during rest for different periods of time during the day to practice. You don't need to be breathing like this all day long. But when you sit down for, say, 10 minutes to practice this, it stimulates the vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve is wandering throughout the human body. It's innervating all of the major organs. And 80 to 90% of the information communicated by the vagus nerve is from the body back to the brain. So what we're doing is we're using the breath as a, an ability to influence the communication from the body back to the brain. And it's also increasing the sensitivity of baroreceptors, which are pressure receptors in the major blood vessels. And the importance of the pressure receptors is that they are so sensitive to changes in blood pressure. And the more sensitive they are, the more resilient the individual. And it's stimulating the vagus nerve and improving the sensitivity of the baroreceptors that in turn is increasing what's called heart rate variability. Therapists of old, you know, if you had, say, a man or a woman in their 60s or 70s, and they've been working with students and clients all their life, they're, they're often aware of a simple means of helping to determine if the person in front of them, if they're in a stress state or if they're switched off. And what they would do is simply locate the person's pulse rate and they would observe their breathing. And as the person is breathing in, the therapist is checking to see, is there any change in the speed of the heart rate? And ideally, what you're looking for is when the person breathes in, the heart rate is speeding up. So the time between heartbeats is less. And when the person is exhaling, the heart rate is slowing down. So the time between heartbeats and the exhalation is greater. This is heart rate variability. We don't want our heartbeat to be in the same 
distance between beat to beat to beat. We need that variation because that's a measure of resilience and also that's a measure of recovery. So, so coming back to our person with anxiety or even just our racing mind or a person with poor concentration, we improve concentration by increasing blood flow and oxygen delivery to the brain. We improve concentration by activating the diaphragm. We improve concentration by slowing down respiration. And we're improving by virtue of calming the central nervous system, calming the brain, but also achieving a balance between the parasympathetic and sympathetic response, between the rest and digest and the fight or flight. But what's more, when we improve our breathing, we improve our sleep. When we breathe light, slow and deep through the nose, it has quite an impact. And this is something that we've observed for 20 years. And I remember back in 1998, I taped my mouth one night after reading a newspaper article. The first morning I woke up, nah, kind of getting used to it. The second morning I woke up, it was the best night to sleep that I had in about 10 or 15 years because I would always wake up feeling lousy and I would always feel, wake up. I, it would take me an hour or two to get going in the morning. And, you know, I'd be looking at the pages. In school, you'd be looking at pages. Your attention isn't even on what you're doing because my attention would be stuck <coughs> in my head, completely absorbed in thought. And here's the other aspect about the breath. When you take your attention out of the mind onto your breathing, you're helping to train your brain to be focused on the breath. And it's a very simple thing to be focused upon. You can train your brain to be focused on your breathing. You can then extrapolate that. You can focus then on whatever you need to focus upon. So, you know, this has been missed. And so we need to look at somebody with anxiety and panic disorder and racing mind, focus concentration from sleep, but also breathing from the biochemical, biomechanical and resonance frequency point of view. There's no point in just tapping into one aspect. It's going to help. There's no doubt. But why not embrace all three? So there's obviously a ton of stuff that was like the, the masterclass on breathing. So thank you. But the one thing that comes to mind is this common thing that you mentioned um, people are told to take a huge breath in. And you also said that, um, you know, we want to get more oxygen into the tissue, into the brain. And, and I just, I know, I want you to just clarify where the, where the disconnect is there. Because people are thinking, hey, I'm breathing more oxygen in, but that doesn't necessarily mean that my yeah. oxygen is getting into where I want to go. And I don't want to assume people know how that works. Yeah, yeah. It's very easy to test this. You could buy a simple handheld device called a pulse oximeter. You pick mm -hmm. them up in drugstores. You might pick them, you'll pick them up online you know, fairly cheap, maybe $30. You put it on your fingertip, put it on your pointing finger. And basically it's picking up on the fraction of your hemoglobin occupied by oxygen. So when oxygen passes from the lungs into the blood, the vast majority of oxygen in the blood is carried by hemoglobin because oxygen doesn't dissolve well in the blood. Only about 1.5% of oxygen is carried directly in the plasma. It needs a carrier and that carrier is responsible for carrying 98% of the oxygen in the body. So that carrier is hemoglobin. If we breathe normally and we breathe light, and if you were to measure your blood oxygen saturation, you will see that it's normal at about 95 to 99% saturated. We don't want it to be fully saturated because we need hemoglobin also to be releasing oxygen to the tissues and cells. So normal breathing, your blood is already almost fully saturated with oxygen. And if you start breathing more air, you're not going to bring up the blood oxygen saturation by very much. You'll bring it up by a small amount, 
but it's not necessarily due to the increased oxygen coming in. And I'll give you another reason for that. You will increase the oxygen dissolved in the plasma when you breathe hard. You will increase the PO2 in millimeter of mercury. But bear in mind, only one and a half percent of oxygen is carried directly in the plasma. The thing about the hard breathing is not the effect it has on oxygen, but the effect it has on carbon dioxide. Because 30 seconds to 60 seconds of hard breathing can lower the CO2 in the blood by half from 40 millimeters of mercury pressure down to 20 millimeters of mercury with up to just one minute of hard breathing. And every one millimeter drop of CO2 reduces blood flow to the brain by 2%. So the hard breathing is not adding up any more oxygen to the blood oxygen saturation, might be one or two percentage points. And part of that is due to the loss of carbon dioxide because the Bohr effect discovered back in 1904, when you breathe hard, you get rid of too much carbon dioxide, blood pH increases, the oxygen dissociation curve shifts to the left, but basically hemoglobin holds on to oxygen stronger when we lose carbon dioxide. So the individual who feels that they're oxygenating their body when they're breathing hard, that was me going into the exam, was entirely the wrong thing to do. Now, hard breathing is a stressor. That's what it is. And that's where people are getting some benefit from it because you're stressing the body. It's a good stress. And it's a good stress to get the body to make adaptations, almost that you're shaking the autonomic nervous system. Hard breathing, of course, is going to exercise the breathing muscles. So it can help to improve respiratory muscle strength. However, if we breathe hard, and say, for example, some of the exercises now that I've included and we're including, we have one exercise that we start off with one breath per second, relatively fast, breathing in and out, in and out. And then after about 15 seconds, we increase it to two breaths per second into three breaths per second. We do it for one minute. So we do one minute of fast, rapid fire breathing. And that's the stressor of the body because it's the speed of the exhalation which determines whether you're stressing the body or relaxing it. If you have a very fast breath out, you stress the body. If you have a really prolonged and relaxed exhalation, you bring the body into relaxation. It's not the inhalation. It's the exhalation which has the greatest control over the autonomic nervous system in terms of fight or flight, arrest and digest. So if we do one minute of rapid fire breathing, we have stressed the body. But after that one minute, we do one minute of breathing light and breathing really slowly. And then that is relaxing the body. And then we do one minute of rapid fire breathing of hyperventilation to stress the body. And then we do one minute of really breathing light for recovery. And then we do another minute of hyperventilation and then another minute of breathing light. In other words, I don't want to upregulate somebody unless I can downregulate them. And I want to show them the tools for both. Now, you know, so there is a role there. And I also, I remember I was writing the book and uh, this man from California, I'd never met him, you know, but he's an Irish guy and he's a CEO of a tech company there. And he said he was under a lot of stress. And I can imagine, you know, um, CEOs and they have a lot of employees and there's absolutely a lot of responsibility there. And he was doing fast breathing and hyperventilation. But he said he was getting something out of it, but it just didn't feel right. And just by chance, he wrote in the email, he was sitting in the sitting room 
And he decided to gently slow down his breathing. His name is Niall Donnelly. So he's given me permission to put his name into the book and everything. And he slowed down his breathing. And after about 10 or 15 minutes of slowing down his breathing, he went into his wife and he said, there's something in this because I feel better. And here we have to bear in mind, here we have an individual, a CEO. He's likely to be alpha male. He's pushing himself. And here then, if he's practicing exercises to stress himself out, maybe that's not for him. Maybe he needs to have the opposite effect. And that's why it's very important to know what do we want to do with the autonomic nervous system? There are some people, yes, we want to stress it, but there are some people we want to relax it. And there are some people we want to do both. And the other thing about breathing is how do we breathe outside of the studio? And that's often neglected. You know, the emphasis on the studio is, um, or if you have a gym and the, the owners and most gyms, most gym owners aren't aware of the benefits of nose breathing versus mouth breathing during physical exercise. So say, for example, we have a gym owner and he's talking about nose breathing during exercise. But really, we should be asking the question is this athlete, this individual here in front of me, I have them nose breathing in the gym. But how is that person breathing outside of the gym? How are they breathing when they go down the street, when they're in stress, when they're asleep? Because it's their everyday breathing patterns. It's how they breathe outside of the gym, which is going to influence how you breathe inside the gym. It's your everyday breathing, which influences your breathing both during exercise and during rest. Sorry, during exercise, sleep and rest. And the other thing is you can screen for it. You know, we spoke when we had our conversation there a couple of days ago about the work of Professor Kyle Kiesel from Evansville University. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he looked at, he's a professor of physical therapy. And what he wants to do was to develop a screening protocol to identify dysfunctional breathing in the population. And he looked at breathing from a biochemical point of view, biomechanical point of view, psychophysiological point of view, concluded that there weren't really strong correlations between the three. And it's quite complex. You know, if you put somebody up to capnometry, you need an expensive device. And, you know, the person might be breathing fine at particular times of the day, and other times their breathing could be all over the place. The biomechanics is a little bit subjective. Psychophysiological, I'm not a fan of the Nijmegen questionnaire in any shape or form. Um, it's validated. So what questionnaire is it? It's called the Nijmegen questionnaire. Nijmegen. And it was developed, It's. I'm assuming it's the University of Nijmegen in Holland that the questionnaire came from, but it was developed as a screening tool to identify hyperventilation syndrome about 30 years ago. And most recently now, the last number, probably in the last decade or two decades, it's used to identify breathing pattern disorders in the adult population. And it's a series of 16 questions and you're answering it to rarely, never, um, and it's it, there's a point score to it. And at the total points, if you got everything on the list would be 64, but if you score greater than 23, it's a sign that you have dysfunctional breathing patterns. However, there are symptoms on the questionnaire that shouldn't be on it, losing contact with reality. I've never seen anybody come in over 20 years say to me that they're losing contact with reality because of poor breathing patterns. Tingling around the mouth, tingling of the fingers, this is acute hyperventilation, not chronic. And when I'm talking about chronic hyperventilation, we have normal breathing, the camera's a bit strange, here at four to six liters of air per minute. That's normal. Somebody who's having a panic attack, it's at the extreme. 
They're breathing really fast, really labor breathing. Normal breathing is recognized. If you're having a panic attack, that's recognized. But what about the piece in the middle? That's not, that's being overlooked. And that's where the majority of people fall into. They're not having a panic attack, but at the same time, they're not breathing normally. And so coming back to Kiesel, his conclusion was after looking at 51 individuals, and by the way, five of them, these were 27 years of age, um, only five of them out of the 51 had normal breathing. That's amazing, 10%. So uh, how, do, how do we quantify normal breathing? Sorry, to, to... So normal breathing would be, typically the way normal breathing is described is that functional breathing is in and out through your nose. Functional breathing is, is slow. It's a normal respiratory rate. So you're breathing a normal number of breaths per minute. Which is how which many? Typically between yep. 10 would be, say, the you know, a pretty good. And 14 to 15 would be towards the upper. Now, 16 is what you'd see in the literature. And I think anybody who's breathing 16 plus, it's it's too fast and it's changed. Instead, we should be looking at between 10 and 14. So a respiratory rate of 10 to 14 breaths per minute. But it's not enough just to look at the respiratory rate. We have to consider what's the volume of air with each breath. Because if you have somebody who is breathing really slow, but they're taking these full big breaths, they can still have a minute ventilation that's beyond what they need. So coming back to normal breathing, in and out through the nose, it's regular breathing pattern. It's a normal respiratory rate. It's driven by the diaphragm. It's effortless. And I think that word effortless is really the key aspect here. We should never feel air hunger. We should never have frequent sighing, for example, is not a good sign. And you'll often see it with people with panic disorder and anxiety. And that frequent sigh, all it's doing is causing major fluctuations in blood gases. That's going to be feeding into anxiety. So normal breathing is regular, light, slow, deep. And light, slow, deep, the easiest way to remember it is LSD. Yeah, fascinating. So one of the terms that you, you brought up, and I just want to kind of come back to this, is, is hypo versus hap, hyper capnography. And I know you were talking about it, but I don't think we drew the correlation between what that is and, and uh, you know, the fact that it's the CO2 levels. Yes. But just going back to that, if you could describe it a little bit, and um, a little bit of conversation around this 40 millimeters versus 20 millimeters of mercury, because that's interesting to me, um, and you know what that really means and maybe what someone would see if they had uh, you know, high CO2 versus low CO2, would there be any type sure. of physical expression? Sure, so I just make the final quick point on Kiesel's paper, because right. I forgot to make it. Yeah. So when he looked at breathing pattern disorders amongst the 51 individuals across three different dimensions, he then used it breath hold time. And his conclusion was, that if you take a normal breath, you're sitting down for say five or 10 minutes, your breathing is normal, and then take a normal breath in and out through your nose and pinch your nose with your fingers, and time how long in seconds can you hold your breath for until you feel the first involuntary movement of your breathing muscles or the first definite desire to breathe. His conclusion was that if your breath hold time after a normal exhalation, and that's a comfortable breath hold time, if it's greater than 25 seconds, there is an 89% chance that dysfunctional breathing is not present. That's a very easy screening tool. And I've seen guys coming in. I remember one Olympic athlete. He won a bronze in the London Olympics. And 
I was working with him virtually and he was complaining that yes, he was pushing himself hard, but he just feeling his chest wasn't right, that he had excessive breathlessness. And I measured his bolt score, which is that breath hold time. It was 12 seconds. And straight away, this could have been picked up on. And I'm just thinking to myself, here you have an Olympic athlete and they've got a team of individuals around them. They're looking at everything except for respiration. And this individual doesn't have asthma, but this individual, just as everybody else, is prone to the stresses and strains and competitive pressures, and that can impact our breathing. So carbon dioxide in the blood, if you think of atmospheric concentrations of carbon dioxide, it's very low. It's 0.04% of the atmosphere. And atmospheric pressure at sea level is 760 millimeters of mercury. And to put into that into context, we all know that oxygen is 21% of the atmosphere. So of that 760 millimeters of mercury, oxygen is 21% and carbon dioxide 0.04%. But how much carbon dioxide do we need in the blood? We need 5%. So we need a multiple of carbon dioxide in the blood than what's in the atmosphere. How do we ensure that we have sufficient carbon dioxide in the blood? Well, number one is the carbon dioxide is produced as a byproduct from our metabolism. So as human beings, we consume food and we breathe in oxygen. And when food and oxygen meets, it's generating energy and carbon dioxide is generated as a byproduct. The more you move your muscles, the more carbon dioxide you produce. The primary stimulus to breathe is carbon dioxide. Every time that you feel the need to take a breath, that's driven by carbon dioxide, not by oxygen. If you do hard physical exercise, you're really working your muscles more. And as you're working those muscles more, you're generating more CO2. And as you're generating more CO2, it's dropping blood pH, and the brain is reacting to the changes in blood pH by stimulating ventilation. So that carbon dioxide in the blood will almost stay the same throughout the day, regardless of what you're doing. It doesn't vary by more than much, by much more than three millimeters of mercury, unless you are stopping your breathing or if you had obstructive sleep apnea. So, so what is the main determinant of CO2 in the blood is respiration, is the volume of air that we breathe. And if we breathe normal, we have a normal partial pressure of carbon dioxide in the lungs of 40 millimeters of mercury, which is approximately in around 5% of the atmosphere, 5% of 760 at sea level. And it's the CO2 in the lungs which determines the CO2 in the blood leaving the lungs. If we breathe too much air, we get rid of too much carbon dioxide from the small air sacs in the lungs, the alveoli, and it's very easy. All we have to do is have a few big breaths and we blow off carbon dioxide. And as we get rid of too much carbon dioxide from the lungs, we in turn reduce that CO2 in the blood. And as we reduce the CO2 in the blood, blood vessels constrict and less oxygen is delivered to the working muscles. And I think the easiest way to think of this is, and this is Dr. John West, he's a really well-renowned authority on respiration. Dr. John West from the University of um, San Diego in California. And he talks about, think about a working muscle. A working muscle is going to need more oxygen than a resting muscle. And how does that working muscle get more oxygen? The more you work the muscle, the more carbon dioxide it generates and the hotter the muscle becomes. 
and the increased carbon dioxide and increased heat causes hemoglobin to release oxygen more readily. Right. So oxygen is not delivered equally throughout the body. It's delivered to the muscles that need it the most. But think of if example, if somebody comes in and we'll say that there's somebody involved with physical exercise and I look at their breathing and you know, you'll see people on television, top athletes, not, not when they're after doing a bout, but they might be at a press conference and it's not post physical exercise. And during the press conference, just look at their breathing. And you look at the person's breathing. And if you see typically faster and upper chest breathing during rest, I know that there is a greater likelihood that that person is going to have disproportionate breathlessness during physical exercise. And there is an energy cost associated with breathing. Every time we move our breathing muscles, we are consuming VO2, that the oxygen consumption is going to support the breathing muscles. During rest, it's about two to 3% as we're sitting here. And um, if you're going to do moderate physical exercise, it's about five, five to 6%. If you're doing fairly high intense exercise, it's about 10%. If you're doing maximum intensity physical exercise, it's about 15%. But if you have a breathing pattern disorder, and if you're breathing more air than what you need for that given level of met metabolic activity, it could be as high as 30%. So for example, when we have people hyperventilate, really breathing hard, that's consuming a lot of oxygen. So we have to ask the question, why not train the breathing muscles? And I'm not just talking about improving respiratory muscle strength, I'm not just talking about thickness of the diaphragm, but I'm talking about function. And we have to ask, in terms of breathing efficiency, it's the biochemistry, it's the tolerance to carbon dioxide as the primary stimulus to breathe. If we're overtly, if we have a high sensitivity to carbon dioxide, it translates into excessive breathlessness, during rest, sleep, and physical exercise. And it comes back because we also know that if we breathe too fast and hard during sleep, it's likely to waken us up we arouse from sleep. So somebody who's having, say, insomnia after four or five hours sleep and they wake up and their breathing is fast, the fact is that the fast breathing during sleep also has implications in your sleep, not just limited to physical exercise. I'm doing a, a study of N equals one right now on sleeping. So, uh, well, so you know the Massimo uh, Pulse Ox? The, the brand, the Pulse Oximeric Massimo, they also make a sleep one that kind of, we wear something on your finger and on your wrist. So I'm gonna do seven days of um, no mouth tape and then seven days of mouth tape. I typically keep yes. my mouth closed anyways, but I'm curious to see what my what my blood oxygen is as it fluctuates throughout the night. If it does fluctuate th throughout the night, is there any research on that, on, on anyone who's- Yes, that? yeah, there's been, it's scanty, you know, like we, we know, and that's been genuine that, you know, the amount of people I've seen maybe seven or 8,000 people, and it was always mandatory. I got them breathing through their nose during sleep and we used the tape and people would say that they're just feeling better waking up. So we know it was having some impact. Mm -hmm. And the first step of science is anecdotal observation. There was a paper published in larger scope in May of 2020, and they looked at 95 individuals with established obstructive sleep apnea, ranging between 45 years of age and 51 years of age. And they looked at them over a two year period, May 2017 to May 2019. Individuals who were solely breathing through the mouth 
And this was, I can't remember the figure, but I think it was 11% of them. 11% were solely mouth breathing. Their AHI was 52 events per hour, which is, it's, it's extreme. It's severe. And their blood oxygen saturation was dropping very low to the high 60s. The next group were individuals who were nasal breathing predominantly, and that was 36%. So 36% were nose breathing only. The rest, and that also gives an idea, these are young people, um, you know, young individuals, and you can see that 36% of them were nasal breathing only. The rest were mouth breathers, either solely mouth breathing or switching from mouth to nose breathing. The nose breathing only group, their AHI was 27 events per hour. It's still not ideal, but there's a huge difference between 27 events per hour and 52 events per hour. And there was also a significant difference in their blood oxygen saturation. So I think, Ben, we can take this one step further. Number one, not just having the mouth closed, but also having the tongue resting in the roof of the mouth. And, you know, being aware of that during wakefulness. And, you know, ideally, you know, we're waking up with the mouth closed and the tongue is resting in the roof of the mouth because the tongue has got two places to be. It's either resting against the palate or it's encroaching and falling into the throat. And men are more susceptible to obstructive sleep apnea. So we have to think of weightlifters. We have to think of rugby, rugby professionals. We have to think of the bigger guys. They're putting their heart under stress in a good way during the day by doing physical exercise. But if they have obstructive sleep apnea at night, they're also putting their heart under stress, not in a good way. And the heart doesn't have a chance to recover. And, you know, I'm sure you've come across, the internet is a little bit unsteady, I'm not sure if it's my end, but I'm sure you've come across, you hear of this NFL player, one of the big guys, he's 45 years of age and he's died in his sleep. And whenever I hear that, I always suspect, what was he breathing? How was he breathing in sleep? Was he breathing with an open mouth? Was he breathing fast and shallow? Was he stopping breathing during sleep where the tongue is not going to rest in the roof of the mouth? And, you know, just in a nutshell, in terms of obstructive sleep apnea, 26% of men under 50 years of age and 43% of men between 50 and 70 years of age. Right. And this has a huge detrimental impact on cardiovascular health, heart attack, high blood pressure, stroke, the brain, dementia, um, diabetes, so cancers. So if you were to look at the side effects of obstructive sleep apnea, and this is totally um, under the radar because it's estimated that 90% of individuals have undiagnosed sleep apnea. And here's the thing, the gold standard of treatment is a CPAP machine and 50% of people give it up after about six weeks. And here you have... The, the main treatment for sleep apnea is a treatment that 50% of the population cannot tolerate. Well, that's hardly a success. Right. And this is where we need to get research into breathing. And there is no doubt for 400 years, and I wrote this in the book and I put in the quotation, 400 years ago it was written that you should breathe through your nose during sleep. And you would think in today's modern technology and advancements in science, and yet, who is talking about the importance of nose breathing during sleep? They're talking about, of course, sleep hygiene. You know, you want a, uh, you want a dark room. You want, you want a silent room. You want to be wearing blue light filter glasses and switch off all of the mobile phones and all that stuff. 
that's all very good but the elephant in the room is get the mouth closed during sleep get breathing through your nose get your tongue resting in the roof of the mouth and nose breathing light slow and deep is going to reduce the ahi index but it's not enough just to breathe through your nose because if you're breathing hard and fast through your nose you're also going to be more likely to be aroused from sleep and i can give you a simple explanation of it i don't know if, I, if we have the time but no, let's do it say for example people coming in who are snoring and you know snoring is pretty common so typically when a person complains of snoring they go to their doctor and the doctor is looking at the airway and wants to make the airway bigger there's two types of snoring one is snoring through the mouth and snoring through the mouth goes a bit like this so you take air in through the mouth and it's vibrating the soft tissue at the roof of the back of the mouth now close the mouth and try and snore through your mouth you can't so normally the treatment is to cut away the soft palate that's that's one intervention that we're doing in this country somebody is mouth breathing cut it away instead of just getting the mouth closed and i'm not being cynical here that's the reality of it and the second one is nasal snoring which is turbulence in the nasal pharynx so in the nasal cavity and where the back of the nose meets the throat and nasal snoring goes a little bit like this now now if we were to start slowing down breathing and really breathe in slowly through the nose and have a relaxed and a slow gentle breath out and breathe slowly through the nose and have a really relaxed and slow gentle breath out and as we're breathing slowly is to snore try and snore through the nose as we breathe slow and you can do it but it's a lot more difficult it's work and in other words the point here is it's not just about the anatomy of the airway we have to consider flow and any of your listeners if they have a low bolt score it means that their breathing is faster and they're more likely to breathe using the upper chest and if you're breathing faster in upper chest you're great you're generating greater turbulence and resistance in the upper airway so there's, there's a consideration that comes to mind with respect to biomechanics so if someone is is overweight in any way think of yes. laying down on your back and putting a putting a weight plate like a like a 50 pound or a 30 pound weight on your chest and saying hey breathe it's really hard yes. then to breathe slowly and when you're obese and you've got all this you know visceral body fat inside your abdomen that prevents the diaphragm from expanding down actually using diaphragms so now these people are limited to this very short breath uh you know space i guess yes. with an additional weight on your chest so i think the you know the root of it is i mean what chicken or the egg right you're getting fat because you're not breathing well and you're not breathing well because you're over you're obese um i mean there, there's definitely correlations there and i think that's where people run into problems like it's physically really really hard to slow down breathing for someone who's overweight or obese including bodybuilders right you have a lot of bodybuilders who develop this this really hyper extended rib expanded posture because like they're using their pecs as muscles of inhalation yes. the diaphragm can't physically do it so you're literally changing posture leading to back pain leading to forward neck posture all these things are a result of i've just got too much mass to be able to actually breathe into my diaphragm and or the yes. diaphragm has never been using it's weak so this is something i run into all the time and uh it's it's hard to fix like if someone's not 100 percent committed to doing it they're not going to see a change yeah there it's you know i suppose people have to realize that it's like everything else the people who are sick and fed up of how they feel 
are more motivated to change. And that's that's the reality of it. Mm. Um, but maybe also, if we were to be able to bring this into physical exercise, for example, we use a, a simple belt and we have a light belt, Buteco belt, and people wearing it during physical exercise, just so that they become aware of where the diaphragm is. And I want them that, I don't have one here to show you the hand, but I'm not sure you might've seen it before, but as the person breathes in, I want them to be pushing against the belt. Mm -hmm. and as they breathe out, I want them to, the belt to be pushing against them. And the other aspect then is doing physical exercise with the mouth closed and just being conscious of if you want to improve breathing efficiency, don't breathe fast and shallow because all you're doing is wasting air to dead space. If you really want to increase oxygen delivery from the lungs into the blood, you're much better off breathing slow and low. And this has been looked at. I remember somebody coming into me with chronic heart failure and she was walking in the office here and I had a pulse oximeter on her and her blood oxygen saturation went down to 92% during walking. And I said, this is not ideal. And I said to her, okay, I want you to breathe through your nose and I want you to put your hands either side of your lower ribs and I want you to start walking with lateral expansion and contraction of the lower ribs. And she continued with the pulse oximeter and we increased her blood oxygen saturation from 92 to 96%. But that's normal. Yeah. There was a study of Kilimanjaro climbers, 39 individuals, two different studies. They were at four and a half thousand meters. Their blood oxygen saturation dropped down. It was 80%, which is severe hypoxia at four and a half thousand meters. And the researchers got the group of 39 individuals to slow down their breathing to six breaths per minute. And their blood oxygen saturation increased from 80% to 89%. So, you know, I suppose the more we talk about what we can do in terms of what weight, you know, what weight build, um, weightlifter doesn't want to have good functioning of the diaphragm breathing muscle. Everyone. You know, you're lifting a weight, you need the abdomen, almost like it's a pneumatic balloon. And that generation of intra-abdominal pressure to prevent the spine from buckling but that's influenced by functional breathing patterns. So we really need to get that diaphragm going. And whether it's lying on the back with the knees bent and putting it just a slight weight on the abdomen, and as you breathe in, you're pushing the weight upwards, and as you breathe out, you're put, the weight is falling, or lying on your front and your elbows. So you're lying on your front, and as you breathe in, you're pushing the belly towards the, the, the ground. Yeah. And as you, as you breathe out, the belly is moving back in. Or for example, taking a normal breath in through your nose and a normal breath out through your nose to functional residual capacity, just a normal breath, but then continuing to exhale, 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 exhale. In other words, getting the diaphragm to move back up to that vaulted position. Um, or you could be doing, take a normal breath in through the nose and out through the nose and pinch the nose and try and breathe in and out as you hold your breath to get activation of the diaphragm. So I think it can be done, you know, once people understand the benefits of it and yeah, sure. Of course, it's not going to be for everybody, but um, if at least people should be offered a choice. So a lot of my audience trains that we work hard and after a workout, we know that we want to stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system. We probably want to bring down epinephrine. Uh, any yes. suggestions as far as breath? Is there any like research around? So obviously we know some some low, low, slow and deep breathing can bring down or our, yes. increase our parasympathetic stimulus. Yeah. Is there anything that maybe protocol wise would be uh, a, a more effective, immediate kind of like stimulus to that parasympathetic tone, or like I said, specific to any of the catecholamine hormones? 
I think, Ben, you said it there. I think that's it. You know, if you look at the research, it's all about the communication from the body back to the brain. Yeah. If we want to activate parasympathetic tone or improve or increase parasympathetic tone, slow breathing and low breathing. I would say breathe in and out through the nose because maybe a lot of people are post-physical exercise or doing it with an open mouth. So you could have their hands just either side of the lower ribs and even as they're just in the cool down. So they're doing kind of light movement and as they breathe in that they're pushing against the ribs and as they breathe out that the hands are pushing, sorry, as they breathe in, their ribs are pushing against their hands mm -hmm. and as they breathe out to feel their hands pushing against the ribs and to slow down the respiratory rate to breathing in for five seconds and out for five seconds. It doesn't have to be perfect, you know, so don't worry about having to look at a watch or anything like that. You have it in your head. You're taking in one, breathe in, two, three, four, five, out, two, three. And that's the best way in terms of helping, you know, increase parasympathetic tone. You're, in my eyes, and sure many people's eyes, the world authority on breathing. Um, where do you think there's a gap right now in our understanding? Or maybe where do you, where are you most interested and curious to explore over the next, you know, 12 to 24 months? I think there's a major gap in sleep. As I said, we submitted that, that article and um, that's been peer reviewed. That's the first article of its type that we're aware of that's looking at exactly what we spoke about. Now, why on earth, given the instance of obstructive sleep apnea, insomnia, snoring, and the impact that that's having on all walks of life, including children. So for example, children with sleep disorder breathing, if untreated by age five, they have an, a 40% increased risk of special education needs by age eight. Wow. That's not my opinion. That's a study of 11,000 children by Karen Bonnock in Stratford-upon-Avon and published in the journal Pediatrics. So think of the CEO, think of the employee, think of the athlete. So sleep, it's really falling down. Breathing hasn't been looked at. The second pillar, asthma. How many asthma societies in the world are actively encouraging their members to breathe in and out through the nose? Is it logical? Yes. Does it make sense? Yes. What does the mouth do for breathing? Does the mouth filter the incoming air? No. Does the mouth warm and moisten the incoming air? No. Does the mouth regulate volume? No. What does the mouth do for breathing? Nothing. The mouth performs absolutely zero in terms of breathing. And yet we have one of the most common respiratory conditions in the world. And the authorities and the, the, you know, the people armed with their medical degrees, none of them are talking about the, the importance of nose breathing. And that's a shame. And these people with asthma, they don't just have asthma, their sleep is impacted. Talk to any asthmatic. When you're talking to them coming into your gym, and you'll see that the ones with out of control asthma, when you talk to them, you'll also find out that they are sleepy, that their, their sleep is affected. Mm -hmm. um, the anxiety population have been let down. And again, from a breathing perspective, cognitive behavioral therapy is wonderful, absolutely wonderful, but it doesn't change respiratory physiology. And if you have somebody with anxiety, whether it's a teenager, and that kid is breathing fast and upper chest breathing, and they can do all the CBT in the world, they're still going to be in that state of fight or flight. We have to change the physiology. Sports. Think of the relationship between functional breathing and functional movement. How many athletes have apprehension about their degree of breathlessness during a physical competition? 
and they have no means of measuring it. But they could measure it by simply measuring their breath hold time. How many athletes are not able to recover? You know, they're still stuck in that fight and flight. You can have great athletes with very low HRV. Um, but also look at the relationship between athletes with dysfunctional breathing and the impact of dysfunctional breathing and functional movement. Can you have functional movement unless you have functional breathing? Nope. And if you don't, if you don't have functional movement, you're at a greater risk of injury. Yep. So athletes who, whose careers can be impacted by virtue of something, that connection that's being overlooked. So, you know, dentistry, and we have wonderful, and by the way, this is not, I'm not just here to criticize everybody. We have tremendous who have been putting out this information. We have some tremendous medical doctors doing it, but the industry, the industry is not doing it. So in the main, the only people who are advancing breath work are the innovators. And you know how often they come across it, Ben? They come across it because of either their own health issues or their children's. And that was the one thing that I kept on noticing with the dentists. And I'll be talking because I've been going to these medical, you know, dental conferences for 10 years plus. We first started traveling in 2005. And, you know, I'm talking to dentists. And why are you interested in nose breathing for your patients? And they know all the information. Well, if we do orthodontic treatment. If the child continues to mouth breathe post-treatment, there's a 65 to 70% relapse of the child's teeth. Can you imagine the parents who are saving thousands of dollars? And the child who is going through, you know, orthodontic treatment, but there's no long-term stable outcome because the habits that cause the crooked teeth in the first place aren't being addressed. And then when I talk to the dentist, how did you find out about this? Very often it is. I was working with my own children. And when I was working with my own children, of course, because your kids are with you all the time, so you're seeing it. Does it work or does it not work? The universities. I think the universities have a role to play here. There's only one sports exercise scientist called George Dallam who's actively taken a role in nasal breathing during exercise. Like, what are what are the sports scientists doing? You know, why aren't they looking at the basic fundamental function of human beings? And of course, breathing is going to impact sports performance. Yeah. But yet, only one is investigating it. That's Dr. George Dallam. You'll find his papers there. You know, and he's written some <clears throat> a couple of wonderful papers. But this is going to be driven from the grassroots upwards. And I'm going to say this, 2020 was the year of the breath. And there was more happened in that year that there was a breathing revolution taking place. And you see James Nestor's book. He's done more for breathing than anybody has done in 20 years. And, you know, it's tremendous because it's lifting all boats. Wim Hof has done wonders for breathing because he's put it out there. And all we're doing is... That's what it needs. It needs debate, it needs attention, and it needs research. And what's more, let's get it out there to children, to teenagers, and to adults. Patrick, thank you. And you're absolutely right. And I think the one uh, the challenge that maybe you guys face in the breath space is kind of the, um, you know, the, the people who are teaching breath who don't know what they're doing, ultimately. There, there's a lot of those on Instagram and you watch what they're teaching, and you're just like, oh, you need to go take the Oxygen Advantage course. So when I first took your course, I think it was 2018, maybe, um, the, uh, the, the um, information that you were imparting was you know, very new to me and just mind-blowing. And I've taken a massive interest in it since then, obviously, as you know. 
Um, but it's not common knowledge, and I'd love to help you uh, make it common knowledge. So thank you very much for coming back on the show, and uh, hopefully we can work together in the future and do some awesome stuff to spread this information because it, it is, in my opinion, the fastest way or the foundation of improving performance, the foundation of improving focus and just improving quality of life, right? Improving sleep, et cetera. So everyone should be in part of with this information. So I'm super grateful for your commitment to excellence and understanding this information and uh, for your time. Thank you. Great. Listen, Ben, it's a pleasure. As always, thank you very much. You can tell people where they can find more from you and when your book is going to be out because I will be the first one to pick it up. Um, the Breathing Cure should be out next week. And oh, yes. that's in that's in Europe. So we're talking about the 27th towards the, the end of January. Um, the United States, our publishers, have put a date of June 2021. So the, wow. the United States... So how can we order from Europe? Would you, will you ship? It will be through the oxygenadvantage.com. Now, our shipping, because of COVID, postage has dropped. You know, there's delays there, but people will still get it a lot sooner. Yeah. And our social media channel is Oxygen Advantage. So that's both on Instagram. And for any of the parents, if you've got, you know, if you've got kids, we have free videos. All of the breathing exercise for children are completely free of charge. Awesome. Um, just put into YouTube, Patrick McKeown, Children's Breathing, and you'll see a suite of exercise if children have asthma or if they have anxiety or if they have nasal obstruction. Um, so it can be good for kids. So yeah, there's a lot of resources on YouTube, Instagram, and uh, our website and uh, butecoclinic.com is our website for health and oxygenadvantage.com is more performance-based. Oxygen Advantage also has the mouth tape, myo tape created. So you yes. can pick that up there, which I highly suggest everyone get. It's funny, I'm actually gonna be creating a course for my children's school on breathing for children. And it just like, give them three to five minutes when they start their day, just to center their mind. And even if it doesn't, my brain goes to, even if it doesn't have the immediate effect, all you're doing is you're giving them a tool so that in the future, they, when, they, when they experience some stress or some, some breathlessness, they know how to go back to it. They have an internal coping strategy, right? Rather than an external coping strategy, which is what most parents are, are kind of inculcating in their children is like, hey, go eat ice cream or go watch the TV or go take a nap or go be in your room. You're like, well, give them some strategy to, to get out of that panic or get out of that anxiety, right? So we can build that into a school curriculum at a very young age. I think uh, we're really empowering those young humans. Yeah, no, absolutely. And as you say, you know, I remember one teacher in my secondary school, I was about 13 or 14 year, years of age, and he gave us about 10 minutes of meditation, or maybe it was a class in meditation. And you know, as kids, to be honest with you, we didn't really take it on board, but you never forget it. Mm -hmm. When you come across meditation again, it's kind of, it's the more you're getting exposed to it, the better. So I think time is never wasted, you know? Yeah. And I think when the time is right, as the fellow says, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. That's right, yeah. And just the idea with my kids every day is just the idea of like, sit down and do five breaths so that when you have that panic, when you have that stressful moment, you know what to do, you know where to go. Cause it doesn't have, it has to be trained in times that aren't stressful, right? And something as simple as five breaths can really bring you out of something that's uh, in the moment overwhelming. And then you realize, hey, I have the tools to cope with these stresses. I don't have to look for something outside of myself. Uh, I think that's really maybe one of the most empowering things you can do for any human. Yeah, yeah. I totally agree. Thanks, Patrick. Super grateful for your time. And we will definitely be sending everyone toward your book and your website. Great, Ben. Thank you so much. That's a wrap, ladies and gents. I hope you took notes. I hope you loved that conversation as much as I did. And do not bypass 
the simplicity of breathing, right? Well, I just breathe and just take it for granted. Don't do that. I promise. I have been studying this stuff for a while, and I really think this is the greatest opportunity that exists for humans right now, as far as if you're not already doing it, because it seems like 95% of people are not already doing some type of breath practice and just creating some intentional breath practice where you're following all the practices and principle Patrick has imparted on us today, uh, the quality of life, your sense of well-being, your ability to recover, your ability to sleep, your ability to perform, all see a sharp uptick. And, uh, and when you don't do it, your body is not as able to adapt. And what I've noticed recently with some of my clients is they'll start going down these negative spirals. And life sometimes can start to be negative spiral downhill, can it? So we get one little stress and we don't deal with it. And when I say deal with it, we don't do the, the, the breathing practices, the meditation, the walking to let it mobilize and move and it starts stacking. So you start developing these phys physiological, physical embodiments of stress and then you don't get rid of it and you stack something else on top, you stack something else on top. Before you know it, you've got anxiety and panic disorder and, and all these ultimate things that are, that are treatable, that are that are preventable if you just take control of your physiology. And uh, you know, as Patrick does such an incredible job explaining today, you must and must and must do this stuff consistently so that when you need it, it's there, right? The, the last time you want to be learning to breathe is when you're in a stressed state, right? We will certainly want to think about the reality of like, hey, I want to learn this skill over here because when I need it, it's just there. That, my friends, is power and allows you to, to step into stress knowing you have the skills and the knowledge to overcome it. And that is power. Right? That's stepping into your power rather than stepping into your victimhood. And I, I don't, I'm not strong enough to deal with the stress outside of me, right? You're strong enough to deal with every stress if you give yourself the tools to adapt and be resilient. I love you guys. And thank you for being here. I'm so grateful for you. And thank you for Patrick for being here. And thank you to our sponsors, realmushrooms.com. Use the code BEN for 30% off. Yes, it's insane. Do it, take advantage because it will not always be there. Definitely get hooked up. And I suggest you guys get on a monthly delivery of mushrooms and, and use them consistently, whether your objective is increasing neuroplasticity of your brain, whether your goal is improving your immunity and your ability to recover from sickness or prevent sickness, or your goal is to improve uh, performance from a perspective of cardiovascular health. Uh, all of those are direct proven benefits of mushrooms and i'm so grateful to have real mushrooms as a continuous supporter of the podcast realmushrooms.com thank you so much for tuning into muscle intelligence if you enjoyed today's episode please be sure to share it with at least one person you know make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode this podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.